0: uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. And if Mike, if you would lower the lights. And I'd like you to pay close attention, listen carefully to this conversation of several people as they reflect on their own sexuality. See if you've ever thought or heard any of these statements before. I'm not a virgin anymore. There's no going back. I just got a divorce after ten years of marriage. You can't expect me to just stop. We're just fooling around. We don't go all the way. Come on, I'm in my physical prime. It's unhealthy to deny myself. We're not ready for marriage yet, but we're ready for the next step in our relationship. Look, it's not like I'm out cruising bars or something. I'm in a committed relationship. Come on, I'm married, I'm blind. It's just sex. Everyone I know is doing it. What goes on behind closed doors in my own home is no one's business but my own. It's just a joke email my buddy sent me. It's just a video. I'm just looking for love. It's just sex. The church tells us not to. Those were rules created thousands of years ago before birth control when life expectancy was what? 40. The world says it's okay. I mean, we use protection. You know what? It's really just between me and my boyfriend. It's just sex. If I'm looking for a commitment for the rest of my life, I just want to be sure that he's the one. It's perfectly normal behavior. Come on, it's sex. It's not a sin. I mean, it's not like we're committing murder. God created sex, right? So what's wrong with it then? It's just sex. It's just sex? I'm not a virgin anymore. It's not There's like I'm not bars or something. Just, I'm in my don't it's, just it's just sex. So what's wrong with it then? Now listen to the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So far the reading of God's word. Well, what do you think of the comments that we just heard up on the screen? Do you agree with them? Do you agree with some of them? Have you said some of them? Have you thought some of them? Or do you think... That they are just rationalizing their behavior in order to clear their consciences. What do you think? I believe, uh, in the light of what Jesus said, I believe that uh, these people are just typical of folks that I meet who uh, want to excuse and rationalize and justify their own behavior uh, and somehow square it, their behavior with um, their behavior with their own conscience. And that's what rationalization is. Let me define it for you. To rationalize is simply to square one's conscience by inventing reasons for someone's own conduct. And we all do it. You do it, and I do it, and children know how to do it. It is like the kid with his hand in the proverbial cookie jar. And mom said, I made these cookies, and they are delicious. And I made them for the whole family, and we're going to enjoy them after dinner together. And then she leaves the kitchen. And Junior says, I'm going to eat some now because I'm hungry. And I'm a part of this family, and I think her stipulations are unreasonable, especially the timing. This whole time delay stipulation is just not reasonable at all. Uh, why does it matter that you have to wait until after dinner to eat these cookies? And I'm not, I'm not hurting anybody. Nobody's a victim here. Does she really have the right to tell me what to do in my own kitchen? what is he doing he's rationalizing isn't he we all do it and the bible says in many places that we are often self-deceived and that's why we read phrases like was read in the earlier scripture and in also in first corinthians chapter 6 verse 9 phrases like this do not be deceived why do you think the bible has to tell us do not be deceived Because we are so willing to be deceived, so easily deceived. And it says, do not be deceived. Now, listen to this list. This is not my word. This is right from the Bible. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, and then the rest of the list, nor thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But I catch the phrase. Do not be deceived. And it seems like, at least at the beginning of that long list, sexual issues were very prevalent. And so we're going to talk about it now. If you're our guest today, we choose what to talk about as we move through the texts of the Bible. And we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and so we got to this text today. God providentially arranged for you to come here today and caused us to be moving through Matthew chapter 5. We got to this passage. I hope you're not uncomfortable. I hope you're not disappointed or offended. Uh, That's not our purpose today. But Jesus talks about it. The Apostle Paul talks about it. King Solomon talks a lot about it. And so we will too. We live in a day don't we that is more highly sexualized than ever before music movies television the internet have this escalating explicit nature to it and and escalating violence attached to the sexuality and it is just it is just rolling 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 the statistics about i i i can can't even get my mind around the statistics of the use of pornography on the Internet, that every second, every second, there's 28,000 people on the Internet using pornography. Every 39 minutes, a new video is made and posted. And, and, and for those of you in finances, you know that this is big business. That the pornography industry has a larger revenue stream than Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Google, eBay, Yahoo, Netflix, combined. Close to, if not surpassing, $100 billion a year. So Jesus talks about this. So do we. And he begins by saying that sexual immorality and adultery is a problem for men who look lustfully after women. And it's a tremendous problem for men. Stephen Arterburn has written a great book. It's called Every Man's Problem. He doesn't doesn't exempt anybody from it. Every Man's Battle, the title of his book. But in our day... It's not just a man's problem, it's also a woman's problem. This explosion in 2012 of what now New York Times is writing about, Time Magazine is writing about, of what is called mommy porn. And the book Fifty Shades of Grey selling two million copies in one month. And everybody says it's poorly written, it's badly written, but the stereotype is the housewives on Long Island are obsessed and excited about it. I haven't read the book, but the storyline, well, the storyline is very 1980s, you know? Beautiful, innocent, smart, together, young college girl falls desperately in love with a magnificently handsome, tall billionaire. That's a typical story. Who says, I'll take care of you. Every want you have, I will take care of. If you sign a contract that you will submit to every sexual desire that I have and let me dominate you any way I please. And she says, sure. And then it is degrading. As a pastor, I've seen... uh, a large number of people confused about this subject. Confused, abused, wounded, broken. Ignorant. Again, I'm not here to insult anyone, but I meet many people who are ignorant of the biblical guidelines. And they find themselves in this pain. They find themselves confused and hurting driven by a desire for pleasure or driven by a desire to be loved and then willing to engage the mind and the body in all sorts of sexual activity and it leads to the result of sexual brokenness. And both Jesus and the apostles talk about rationalization and confusion on this subject. And so they present God's standards, faithfulness in marriage, in order to have sexual purity in marriage and in your life, now this may be a foreign concept this the idea the whole idea of sexual purity is a foreign concept in our culture It's some in many parts of the Christian culture, it's a foreign concept, but it's a foreign concept, but it's not foreign to the Bible. so moving to point number two, at the core of my self-deception and your self-deception. Jesus locates the problem in the text in lust. Lust. What is that? That is imagining the possibilities of sexual involvement with someone who is not your husband or your wife. And Jesus teaches us that in our sinful world, our instincts are ruled more often by lust than by love. What is lust? Lust is going out to take and get from somebody else for me, for my pleasure. What is love? Love is just the opposite. Love is the giving, the giving of oneself totally and freely to bless another person. And so we read in verse 28, Jesus saying, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, before I move on to point A under section 2, I just want you to to get a sense of the breadth and the depth of the sin that Jesus is talking about here. You know, uh, of course, from our earlier studies, Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And these guys, um, what they're good at is reducing the commandments so that they're not accountable to them. That's rationalization, right? And, and here's what they think. They think, as long as I've not actually performed the act itself, this seventh commandment has nothing to say to me. All right? That's the way they're thinking. I'm innocent as far as this command is concerned. And and Martin showed us so clearly last week. It's that same thing about murder. Well, I never plunged the dagger into somebody's heart, so this commandment, you shall not murder, has nothing to say to me. And Jesus says, no, wait. Sin is not just on the surface. It's not just the fruit of the tree. Sin arises in the roots of the tree of the soul. And I've told you many times that your soul has roots. Your heart has roots that run deep into your soul. And there is corruption in our souls. We are fallen men and women. There is corruption. And so it's not just about sins, plural. It's about sin. Capitals that runs deep in our heart. So there is a deep and powerful selfishness and self-centeredness in our hearts that lead to the symptoms of our sins. And it's not the symptoms that are first, but the disease of sin, the reality of sin that matters. That's what Jesus is saying. And the power, it's so powerful, it's so powerful that for just a few moments of personal gratification, I will act in a way that will destroy my marriage. And humiliate my reputation. And dishonor my heavenly father. Sin rises up and does battle with my soul. So Jesus is saying to you and to me, the fact that you have not committed the act of adultery does not mean you are guiltless, okay? So your heart. Today I'm inviting you to examine your heart. This is between you and God today, not between you and me, but between you and God. Jesus says it's very subtle. You see, the Pharisees weren't getting it. If you indulge in fantasies, if you enjoy sinning in your mind and in your imagination before a holy God, you have the cancer of lust operating inside of you. And many of us were trained, even as children, this way. Talked to a man who just talked about being in his grandfather's garage. And there were pinups. Very uh, seductive pinups just on the wall. And that's where granddad hung out with his buddies. It was harmless, right? But he said for him as a seven and eight year old, it shaped the way he learned to think about women. And he trained himself how to want to possess women as objects for his personal pleasure. Just because of that. How were you trained? And you cannot leave this passage that talks about the the power and the subtlety of sin without understanding Jesus talks about the destructive nature of sin, that it is destructive. For the Bible teaches you that the wages of sin is death and the destiny of the wicked is hell. Hell. For there will be no unrighteous in heaven. They can't be. There can't be. Because God is pure. God is light. God is love. God is holy, holy, holy. Do you understand? If you don't, then time out, time out, time out. Okay. We have to do a time out here. And I want to stop and say, when it comes to sexuality, we Christians are mostly known for what we're against rather than what we are for. And yeah, that's why we have the whole Bible. And The Bible is not simply negative about sex. The Bible is very positive about sex. Did you know that? And the Bible teaches that you should celebrate your sexuality. You should be comfortable With your sexuality, and you should experience it with joy and with holiness inside the covenant of marriage. And there's lots of passages that teach this. Listen, you know, how many times have you heard, you Christians, all you want to do is bash homosexuals? Yeah. You Christians, all you ever want to do is take away people's joy and impose your morality on everybody else. Well, Charles Coulson used to say, look. Christians cannot impose anything on anybody, but what we can do is propose something better. God's way, which is better than the world's way. And our job, Colson would say, is to hold out. The men's group, they were studying this in Colson's book, The Faith. Our job is to hold out a vision of life that is better, that produces a human flourishing and human wholeness and healthiness. And so we understand the health of a man and a woman coming together unselfishly, spiritually, emotionally, and physically becoming one flesh just as happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were brought together and the two became one flesh and it was good. Very good. Not dirty, not bad. It's tragic, isn't it, that in the ancient church, even respected church fathers like Ambrose and Tertullian, who wrote a lot, they got this idea that sex, well, sex, okay, you gotta make babies. You use it to make babies, but unfortunately that's all it's good for. And and over the centuries the church began to have this idea of celibacy in its clergy, and so sex was bad and by the time uh, Martin Luther came around, they had all these feast days that, that would not allow married couples to have sex. You had to abstain from sex on 183 feast days. Praise God for Martin Luther and the Reformation <laughs> that did away with all that. Thank you, Martin. The first thing you need to know if you're going to understand why God hates adultery so much is to understand how much he loves marriage and love in marriage and the intimacy of a man and a woman becoming one flesh. Okay, are you with me on this? Proverbs 5, he says, Drink water from your own cistern. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you at all times. May you be intoxicated with her love. This is the vision of husband and wife that Solomon lays out for us. In your marriages, would you pray and would you ask God to give you A sexuality that you can celebrate that brings comfort, intimacy, pleasure, procreation. The desire for the control of temptation. Pray that it would be intoxicating. That it would be pleasurable. That it would be desirable. That it would be powerful. That it would be unifying. Because that's God's intention now. Here's why we've taken time on how good sex in marriage is, because you'll never understand that adultery is treason to the family and to the spouse and that God hates it unless you understand how much God wants husbands and wives to nurture their love for each other. And Tim Keller, in his inimitable way, he he puts it like this, like this. Listen, He says, why is adultery in all its forms forbidden? Not because sex is bad, but because it is designed to be such a powerful force for good. Sex is like super glue. When used properly, it seals the bonds of marriage. The glue is covenant cement, and it holds a a marriage secure. That's why. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3, a command. He gives a command to the husbands. He says, husbands, you, sh- you must fulfill your marital duty to your wife. You must have sexual relations. You must make love to your wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband, do not deprive each other. Except for a season of prayer. Okay, you want to have a, a time to pray? Okay, Okay. take time to pray. But other than that, you need that super glue. And when you use it at the wrong time, in the wrong place, in the wrong way, it creates an awful mess. If you ever used epoxy glue, you know you, you can really make a mess with it. So, this is why adultery is forbidden. It's because... Sex is a great force for good when it's used to join one man, one woman together for life. And so we refrain from adultery, Jesus says, and from all forms of sexual immorality stemming out of Exodus 20:14, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And all sexual moralities flow from that. In our premarital counseling, and one of the great joys I have as a pastor is to do premarital counseling. If you want to get married, come to your pastor. Let's talk about the issues of marriage and let's learn the Bible together about them. One of the things we teach is that sex in marriage is a drama between two people saying, I'm giving myself completely to you, for you, permanently, to, to give myself to you in a way that is uh, that we are naked and unashamed. And And if you say by the way, the back door is open and I can go out as soon as I get tired of you. You're lying. It's a lie to say I'm giving myself completely to you when you say, but I can still run out the back door when I feel like it. No. Proverbs 6, 32 and 33. A man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. His shame will never be wiped away. And Jesus takes adultery to the deeper level. He says it's a matter of lust in your heart. I've, I, you know, you watch TV and you hear this unfortunate phrase He's a man and he wants a woman. No, he doesn't. He wants a thrill. And the woman is just the commodity that he will use to get the thrill. And you'll, you'll know that because of how he relates to her afterwards. And he's on his merry way. Love him and leave him. That's the, the way of the culture. But will he be satisfied? And now here's the question for me and for you. If you struggle with lust, will your lust ever be satisfied? What do you think? Steve Gallagher writes in his book at the altar of sexual idolatry, he says, lust is demanding and never satisfied. The more one feeds the beast, the more ravenous it becomes. Giving into lust, see, this is Proverbs six, twenty-five. Giving into lust is like playing with fire. Can a man scoop fire onto his lap and not be burned? This fire, this fire that you scoop into your lap, is it really dangerous? It just begins with the eyes. It just begins with the glance of the eyes. And then the second look. Second Samuel 11, verse 2. Second Samuel 11, two. One evening, King David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing The woman was very beautiful. And where did that look lead to the destruction of David's leadership and his life and his family? So many dangers. But This is the way lust works. It takes on a power of its own and it pulls David in deeper. It pulls you in deeper. I don't know where it might pull you, but I know that in our day, since it is... Everywhere in music and TV and the Internet, it pulls you in and and you, you will do things that today sitting here you would never consider doing if you do not guard your heart. You say, oh, no, John, not me. I'm in control of myself. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. I know how to take care of myself. If you put hot coals and fire into your lap, you will get burned. That's how sin operates. You're playing with fire. And Jonathan Edwards says that sin turns the heart into a fire. And just as there has never been a fire that said, enough fuel, I'm fine now. I don't need any more fuel and I need no more oxygen. Jonathan Edwards says, so there has never been a sinful heart that said, that's enough oxygen. I won't want any more oxygen on this fire. It will continue to suck in more and more oxygen. And The hotter it burns, the hotter it burns, the more it needs, and the more oxygen it brings in, the more fuel it requires. So Jesus warns us and calls us to sexual purity. But, well, you can't just deal with the symptoms. And Jesus didn't come to do that. Point number three, he came to redeem our sexuality. Now, maybe there's somebody here today that says, well, who is this Jesus? What gives Jesus the right to interfere in my bedroom? Who does he think he is? What qualifies Jesus Christ to claim governance over our sexuality? What is it? And the answer is, Jesus is the faithful lover. Jesus never commits adultery. Jesus is the bridegroom who adores you, his bride, and loves you with an everlasting love. Jesus is the one who has waited for you and who will return one day and take you to himself. And he will adore you, adorn you with the garlands of salvation of the bride. Jesus is the faithful husband who's never committed adultery. And so he can talk to any of us about the issues of our own sexuality. And he's qualified. He alone is qualified. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? You can you can read all the secular websites about people wringing their hands about sexual addictions. and And, and the counselors have nothing to say other than to rationalize it and say, there, there, do your best. But Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's the Lord of Lords. And, and if you're in a relationship with Him, then He has claim over even this spoke on the wheel of your life. How do you do it? Two ways. David Ravenhill, the great Christian preacher, he says, you do it, you come clean, and you stay clean through Jesus Christ. Come clean and stay clean. And, and he says, King David, who blew it, is our example in Psalm 51. And do you know Psalm 51? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. You see, Jesus is the lover of lovers. He's the, the faithful one. According to your unfailing love, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. What do you do? You do what David does. You fulfill 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. So if you're here today and you say, you got me, Jesus, preacher. Okay, I've been guilty. Well, confess your sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, okay? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then Psalm 51, 6, you have to deal with the inward parts. It's not superficial. This is painful stuff. This is deep stuff. It has to be cleansed at the cross. At the cross where your faithful Savior died. For such a worm as I, he died. He shed his blood. My God, how could you shed your blood so pure and undefiled? Come clean at the cross. And there you are washed white as snow. And then... You want to stay clean. And this, well, this is the Christian life as we move forward and we sing uh, one hymn. We're not going to sing it at the end, but we sing that wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts, Love So Amazing, So Divine, Demands My Soul, My Life, My All. And for the Christian, this is the incentive to put to death the deeds of the body. Love So Amazing, so divine is the motive and the power to stay clean. So Jesus says, look, if your eye causes you to sin. Don't look. If your foot causes you to sin. Don't go. If your hand causes you to sin. Don't use it. And, and he's just teaching what Psalm fifty one ten says, create in me a clean heart. A pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. So now David is saying, so with my eyes, I'm not going to look. You go to the beach, protect your eyes. You go online, protect your eyes. We all have to do that. You, you, uh, You type with your hands. Don't type with your hands in wrong ways. The guys after work are going to the strip club. Your feet don't go. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands your soul, your life, your all. Yeah, I know, I know. Jesus, he said, pluck out your eye. Ooh, that's grisly. Slice off your hand. Ugh, that's bloody. Cut off your foot. He doesn't mean that you're supposed to maim yourself. Why? How do you know, John? Don't we take the Bible literally? Well, not here we don't. It's true. You don't take it literally. You take it properly. It speaks with authority right here. And Jesus is not talking about self-maiming. Don't maim yourself. If you cut out your right eye, you still got your left eye. You cut off your right hand, you still got your left hand. You can type with your left hand cut off your right foot, you still got your left foot, you can hop. He's not talking about self-maiming. He's talking about self-mortification. Mortification, an important term to understand. Mort means death. John Stott said, this is the path to holiness. Mortification, taking up the cross. And to follow Christ means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or put them to death. Men, Paul writes to Timothy. Young men, Paul writes to Timothy, a young man, and he says this. Treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. I take this very seriously. I'm, we are friends with the sisters in the church. That's fine. Treat them as sisters. They're sisters. Treat them as sisters with absolute purity. Men, we need to talk about this. Saturday night we can talk about this at the men's uh, barbecue. But we we need to hold each other accountable. We need to walk together. Women, you need to hold each other accountable. You need not to join the Housewives of Long Island Gossip Club. You need to be accountable in how you relate. And I know it's just been 30 minutes and I'm only getting started, but... All these great books written. There's Every Man's Battle by Stephen Arterburn. I'll have it up front for you to look at. Real Sex by Lauren Winner. The Truth, The Naked Truth About Chastity. Very well written. At the Altar of Sexual Idolatry by Steve Gallagher. How to Deal with the Flames Inside Your Loins, he says. And then Eros Defiled. When I was a young Christian, this book helped me enormously. Written by a Christian psychiatrist named John White. John White. Eros defiled the Christian and sexual sin. We have um, uh, passion and purity by Elizabeth Elliot, written to young women, a, a remarkable for our teenagers. We have uh, we've we've used this. Sex has a price tag uh, by Pam Stenzel, and every young man's battle that are in the curriculum for our youth group and for our teenagers. Jesus didn't say these things to drive you away. He just says, come clean and stay clean. Husbands, love your wives. Delight in them. Wives, delight in your husbands. And and for any sinner, it's never too late for a sinner to repent. The worst thing you can do is say, well, I'm going to put it off until I'm a little more comfortable. No. No. Today, today, right now, we bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Let's come to the Lord. Let's invite Him to do business and then let His grace minister to each one of us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for our faithful lover, Jesus Christ. Our faithful husband and bridegroom, jesus christ we thank you that he has loved us with an unfailing love and out of that love lord jesus christ you have the right to the ownership of our sexuality some of us are bruised some of us are abused some of us are confused If you're bruised and beaten up, would you just tell the Lord? If you're confused, if you've been abused or abused someone else, tell him. Our Father, we want to come out of the darkness and we want to come clean. We want to be light in the Lord. Yes, this is what we want. And in our marriages, would you teach us to love, love one another deeply, bring that power and pleasure, that unifying experience to us. Oh Lord, that you have designed and that you have called good. Pray for the single people in our church, Lord. You're so precious to us. Pray that you would help us to treat one another. Men treat the sisters, as uh, the women as sisters in absolute purity that the women would treat the men as brothers in purity. Oh, we thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for the blood shed for us, so pure. My blood would never do. There's no one sitting here who could shed their blood for our sins. But he came, and his blood was pure and undefiled for us. What grace, what grace. We need your grace now, in Jesus' name.